there. Welcome to the Calm Podcast, combining academia and life with Marilyn. My name is Marilyn Ritchie, and I have been a mentor and a scientist for 15 years, and I wanted to find a platform to reach more of the academic community than I interact with at my own university. My goal is to give you strategies and ideas for how to achieve harmony between work and life. Sit back, relax, and let's achieve harmony together. Hey there, this is Marilyn, and welcome back to another episode of the Calm Podcast. I hope that you are staying well and having a great week. When I'm trying to decide what the topic will be for an episode, I usually just reflect on what's going on in my own life, because usually if I'm... uh, having the same conversation over and over or dealing with something, I assume that other people are too. So this one is one of these topics that I had the same conversation probably with six different people over the course of the last month or two. And I was like, okay, it's time that I should probably talk about it because clearly it's on the mind of lots of of students and postdocs. And so today I'm going to talk about publication strategies. So this is definitely a more academic episode than a lot of the ones that I do, but I think it's an important topic. There's a lot of different philosophies and strategies around publishing scientific work. And my views that I'm going to talk about today, I want to start off by saying that as I go through these thoughts, I'm not trying to suggest that my views are right and the way that other people choose to navigate these issues is wrong. It's, I want to go back to that word philosophy. I think many of us have different philosophies about publication and how we make some of the decisions that we make. I guess I should say there is certainly a right or wrong in terms of ethical publication. You know, you want to make sure that your data are accurate and you're not fabricating any data. You're not misleading the readers. You're not drawing conclusions that are unjust or unwarranted. Of course, there is that type of kind of right and wrong. But most of what I'm going to talk about today is really kind of the more I don't know, gray areas of, well, you could do it this way or you could do it this way. And here, I don't think there is a right or wrong. For those of you who are not in academia, but you're choosing to listen anyway because you're curious, uh, a little bit of background as to why this is such an important issue. You know, when you are an academic, one of our currencies, the ways that we are judged by our leadership and our supervisors is our publication strategy and how many papers we publish and the quality of the papers. Uh, the, the phrase publish or perish is one that I really don't like, but you hear it in academia a lot. And the basic premise of that is that we have to be publishing the work that we're doing. And that is how, how we're judged when people interview for jobs, for postdocs or for faculty positions. The publication record is one of the things that gets looked at. If you are going up for promotion from assistant professor to associate or associate to full, the publication record is one of the things that gets looked at. 
So it's a very important metric of success in an academic's career. I'll also say there is a point about quantity versus quality that really gets to the crux of a lot of the philosophy points that I'm going to talk about today. In my opinion, both are really important. And it's not fair to just blanketly say that either quantity or quality is the most important metric. And I know that some people would disagree with that. Many people view that quality and impact of the journal is the most important thing to focus on. And especially when it comes to training students, I don't think that that's true. And here's why. For students, and really even for postdocs who are in training, part of that training experience is learning how to write a paper. How do you take the work that you're doing in the lab and turn it into something publishable? How do you go through the review process, get reviews back from peer reviewers, process them kind of mentally and emotionally, revise the paper accordingly and do the additional work that's needed and then resubmit it. That's a whole process that needs to be learned. And so if we consistently wait until we have a high impact, kind of really high quality paper, and when I say quality here, I guess I'm, I'm not talking about like doing a great job on the paper. Of course, we always do a great job. I mean the quality of the journal, as in, you know, is the impact factor greater than, you know, 10 and one of these kind of top tier journals. That's what I mean when I say quality in this sense. It is the case that certainly we all want to have a lot of high impact papers, you know, in high impact journals, but students need to publish their work. And sometimes a dissertation project doesn't meet the mark to be in a high impact journal. That's not a failure of the student. It's not a failure of the project. It's just the reality. Every project cannot make it into one of the top tier journals. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have the student publish along the way. So I'm going to talk about the different philosophical points and um, just kind of go through my views. I, I'll say again, I think, I think most academics are flexible in their views of the points that I'm gonna make. But I will say that I have encountered some who are pretty dogmatic in their view. And the reason that I'm saying this is that if you are a student or a postdoc listening to this, and I suggest something and you take it back to your advisor and they you know, refuse or don't like the idea or say no, like we're not doing it that way, I, I understand and just Mentally be prepared for that. If you do have an advisor that is a little more dogmatic and they have a certain way that they they do publication and they're not willing to um, deviate from that, I really try to be open-minded with my students and postdocs and make sure that we kind of meet their training needs more so than my own publication record needs. But that is sometimes a challenge, and a lot of that has to do with what stage the mentor is in and their own um, career trajectory and kind of how close they are to their next promotion stage. So 
Today I'm going to talk about these different kind of questions that I ask myself and my students and postdocs and give you some, some strategies and some tips and some ways to think through the publication process. So today I'm going to talk through the different questions that I get asked pretty regularly from students and postdocs and sometimes even other faculty on how to decide, you know, when it's time to publish a paper. So the first question that I get a lot is how do you know when you have enough data to write a paper? This is a really important one because we're always coming up with more experiments to do, more questions to ask, and at some point you have to say, okay, this is enough, I'm gonna stop and publish. So the first thing that I always recommend is to think through what an outline of a paper looks like and actually create the outline. So a typical publication has an introduction, methods, results, discussion, sometimes there are some additional sections in there. But if you outline that and then go through the different methods that you applied and the results that you have, you don't have to write them in paragraph form and eloquent prose, you just kind of make bulleted lists. Think through it, what's missing? Are there any obvious holes that you know that reviewers would find? Do you find that it's too much for a paper? You know, maybe it's too many things and you really better stop and publish soon and maybe even leave some of it out. Um, will really important elements and important data get buried or lost in a supplement because you have so much data? I think this is really important because sometimes there are elements of publications that, you know, because there's so much data in them, there's some key, really interesting work that really doesn't get talked about very much. And I know I get disappointed when I'm reading a paper and I'm like, oh, like that's the part I want to see. And it's, you know, data not shown or it's a, a summary of it in the supplement. I get bummed that sometimes it's like the key set of experiments that I want to see. I often ask when you do have what feels like too much data, should you split any of the data off for a second paper? Uh, this typically means that, you know, maybe you have one higher impact paper and one kind of lower impact, more specialty paper that's nuanced based on some aspect of the data that you have. Uh, sometimes it just means two smaller papers. You need to ask yourself, is it ready for review? And do you expect the reviewers to ask for more data? And do you feel like that's a, a good thing that you can work on through the peer review process? Or do you feel like you really don't have enough data? And not only would they ask for more data, but they'd probably reject the paper because there's not even enough to um, you know, accurately review what's there, that you really are missing key data. And then I also think an important point is to ask yourself, what is the purpose of the paper? And ask yourself, what is the main question that I'm trying to answer? Can you address the purpose of the paper and the main question with the data and the content that you have? These are the questions that I typically ask myself and I uh, recommend that others ask whenever we're trying to decide if it's enough for a paper. And like I said at the beginning of this, you often have to just call it and say, all right, as of this day, 
we're done, we're writing the paper. It is absolutely the case that we always come up with another question. We always come up with another experiment. Research, by the very nature of it, is never done. And so you have to just kind of draw an ambiguous line in the sand and say, like, this is the point at which we're going to stop and write this up. Otherwise, we'll never publish anything. The second thing that I typically ask, what do you do with negative results? I was just talking about this with one of my students this week. There are a lot of options when you have negative results. So one is that you leave them buried in a lab notebook to die. Whether your lab notebook is paper or digital, a lot of negative results just end up in lab notebooks and no one in the world ever sees them. I think that that's unfortunate because I think there are always lessons to be learned in negative data. Another question you can ask is, should I put them on a public blog? Do I have a public blog, first of all? And is there a way to present them in a blog format that would be useful? Should I put it in a, an archive paper, a bioarchive or archive? These are those pre-publication servers that are not peer-reviewed. Or can you publish them? And in my opinion, and this is one of those topics that I think is controversial, if I'm going to spend a lot of time generating the data, I really want to get them out in front of others. I think it's unfortunate to spend you know, months and months of work on something that no one ever sees. And, and that happens. So I, I'm not saying we publish all negative data, but more importantly, what did you learn through the negative data? And could you educate another grad student or another postdoc through the results that you generated? In a lot of cases, you know, the questions that we're asking, probably someone else is too. You know, we all think that we're very innovative and creative and coming up with questions and experiments to do. But the reality is that, you know, a lot of us are just following the natural next step based on a publication or a series of publications that other people did. And so probably someone else is thinking the same thing that you are. And if you've spent six months and figured out that this path leads to a dead end, like, wouldn't you love to save somebody else six months of time so that they don't go down that same route? So in my mind, I always try to find a way to publish negative results if possible. And there are a number of different strategies for doing that. So one, do they fit in the supplement of a larger paper that does have a positive result? So in a lot of projects, we will be kind of going in a certain direction the results are all you know, negative, we're not finding any signal, then we make some pivot and change either the methodology or we change some aspect of the question or something about the data uh, or what, you know, what variables we're using in the modeling, and now we find something. Well, perhaps the best strategy is to say, you know, somewhere in the paper, we also tried this other methodology or these other variables and there was no signal. And so it could just be a small section of the paper or even kind of putting those results in the supplement so that they're not 
lost forever in a lab notebook, they don't take prominent real estate in the primary kind of figures and tables of the paper, but they are there for someone else to find out in the literature. Another strategy that we use in my lab often is to write what I would frame as a, a lessons learned paper. This is my favorite approach, and that is, you know, can you take the failed experiments and find the lesson in them and write up the paper that way so that it's more of an educational paper? It is, you know, teaching someone else the lessons that you've learned so that they don't make the same mistakes that you did. It sometimes takes some convincing to get someone to write one of these papers because through the process, you're basically saying, here are all the things that I tried that failed and nobody really loves to put their failures out into a publication. But once you talk through it, you know, but wouldn't you love to save many other people the time that, that you have? And, and you've now learned something. You now know something that no one else knows. Don't you wanna share that? So this is my favorite strategy um, if you look through my papers, I often have uh, a handful of lessons learned papers. And, and these are how we turn our failures into lessons. It's how you figure out, you know, how do I avoid doing this again? And how do I help others avoid doing this? Another thing that you could do is to make it a smaller, kind of more typical research paper where, you know, the, re the results are that there was no signal or that there was no finding and that it's just a negative result. It typically will get into a, a lower tier or mid-tier journal, but it is another approach that you could take. So as I go through these different um, decisions, you know, what are we gonna do with this? I often kind of go through three questions. How much time was spent on this project? And so, if it was something that took, you know, six months or more, you you should have something to show for all of that effort. Kind of, you know, you don't want to spend a ton of time and then be like, well, I did all this stuff and I have nothing to show for it. So can you take that time investment and turn it into something publishable? The second thing is, why are the results negative? Is it due to a bad hypothesis? Was it a lack of power? Did we make mistakes along the way? The reason for the negative result may impact the decision to whether or not it's publishable. So if it really is a series of mistakes, the you really can't publish the results. And I wouldn't spend the time publishing, you know, a typical research paper with just negative results if what you have were mistakes. Instead, I would publish the lesson learned. Like, here are the mistakes that we made and you know, why it was so easy to make them and how you could avoid making the same mistakes. This often has to do with, you know, in certainly, you know, I work in the data science space, so we're often dealing with different methodologies that have assumptions. And so, you know, you use this method making this set of assumptions, but perhaps they're not accurate assumptions to be made. So in some ways, that's kind of a mistake that we made some assumptions that we couldn't make. But if we made them, then someone else may make them too. So this, again, goes back to that lessons learned type of paper. And then the last thing uh, that feeds from that, number three, is is there a lesson or a teachable moment in the set of negative results that we have? And more often than not, the answer to that one is yes. And so we try to find a way to put those negative results somehow out into the literature 
to educate others. But this is one that I would predict as you think through it yourself or talk with your own advisors and mentors, this is probably one that has the most controversy. All right, the third topic that I want to talk about is should you do one big impact paper, high impact paper, or two smaller papers? This is probably in the top two of the most controversial things. So one is publishing negative results, and the other one is this. Do you split it into two papers or make one big high impact paper? I am strongly of the mind that it really depends. I cannot say that it is always best to do one bigger high impact paper rather than two smaller papers. And I'm gonna explain why, because I know that that view would be unpopular with some of my colleagues. It depends on the stage of the career that you are in. If you are a graduate student, and this is the, the start of your publication track record, you've never published a paper before, it is really hard to get a large high impact paper published. It takes multiple rounds of review. There are a lot of experiments that have to be done that do get buried in the supplement often. And even just the writing of the paper, a lot of high impact journals have very limited word counts and very specific formats that are just a little bit harder to write, in my opinion. So, for example, some of the journals have the introduction and then the results and discussion and then the methods are at the end. Well, that's actually a little bit tricky to write. You know, describing results when you have not yet described the methods kind of means that you have to sprinkle a little bit of the methodology in with the results so that the reader can understand what you're talking about, but it's not your traditional method section. That's at the end. So, I don't feel like that's the best first paper for someone to write if they've never written a paper before. I think it's really important to learn the scientific writing process, you know, introduction, methods, results, discussion. That doesn't lend itself to some of the high impact journals. At the same time, if you are at a a stage of your career, so you're, you know, an assistant professor looking at the tenure clock, or you're an associate professor looking to full professor, you could be at a point where you really do need a high impact paper to make it over that next hurdle. And so there, it's a matter of figuring out kind of how to package the things that you're working on into a higher impact paper instead of multiple small papers. I think it's important to look at your CV or your resume as a whole. How many papers do you have? It is certainly the case, and it depends on what institution you work for. For some, there's a certain threshold that you have to meet to go on to the next thing. So for graduate students, sometimes you must publish one paper to graduate. Some programs have two or three. That's important when you're deciding how to package your work. If you need two or three publications, you're you're going to have to kind of 
publish each aim as you go through your dissertation. If you are going up for tenure, some institutions have a threshold. You must have 30 papers. Well, then you have to package your work into 30 papers. You can't say, well, I only have 15 because I always shot for a higher impact journal. Some institutions may not go for that. It, it may be a hard number. I'm not saying that's a good thing, just saying that's the reality. So how many papers do you need for the next um, kind of hurdle that you're trying to jump? And then the last thing, it's just important to remember that the likelihood of success in getting a paper into a high impact journal is low. Even the best, most exciting projects that we think are going to go high impact sometimes don't. And so especially when a student or a postdoc is involved, making them go through the very long peer review process multiple times with multiple high impact journals only to find out in the end that it didn't get into any of those top tier journals and we end up mid tier anyway is just something I don't want to put them through. It's not a matter of, um, you know, their perseverance and learning, you know, about rejection. They're going to get enough of that. It's that they need those publications on their CV to apply for their next position. If they're a grad student, they really need publications to get a postdoc. If they're a postdoc, they need publications to get a faculty position or to get a job. And so I don't think it's fair to the students to make them wait because we really want that high impact paper. And I'm gonna just kind of leave an anecdote here. I have encountered this twice now with students not in my own lab, other students whose thesis committees I've been on over the years who have come to me towards the end of grad school. It's, you know, year five, year five and a half, and their mentor has not let them publish their work yet because they are going for this high impact journal. And so they have now done four to five years of work and they're ready to graduate. They need a publication to graduate, mind you, but they also need it to get a postdoc. And I just feel so bad for these students. And it just breaks my heart because they should have published something along the way. So now they are finishing graduate school and they don't yet know how to write a paper. That just shouldn't happen. And if you're one of these mentors that does that, please hear me out. Part of our job is to teach them how to write a paper, how to revise a paper and resubmit a paper. That's a process that we have to teach them. You cannot wait until they're done with graduate school. And now they, they're they trying to graduate and they're trying to rush through, which does not result in high quality writing for a high impact paper. So it is on us to figure out what nuggets of work do they have that they can split off into smaller papers. You know, most graduate students are supposed to publish one to two papers. A lot of graduate students publish two to five papers. So if they're applying for postdocs and they're put up against their peers who have published five papers and they have zero at the time that they're interviewing for a postdoc or maybe one under review, like where have we positioned them? So I really think it's important that we think about the trajectory of the student and the education of the student, not our own desire to have a high impact paper. 
All right, the fourth thing that I think is important to think through is authorship. How do you decide decide who's a co-author on the paper? Many journals have guidelines that just make this simple. You look through, like here are the things that need to be done to be uh, an author. What, what qualifies you as an author? I tend to be inclusive and include everyone on the paper who has done any of the things that merit authorship. I had a mentor at Vanderbilt many years ago who once said, arguments over authorship are the first step to a divorce. And he was speaking, you know, metaphorically, a divorce of a collaboration. And he always used to say, it's not worth it for a paper. And I can tell you, you know, now 20 years later, I have, I don't know, 350 papers. Yeah, I would never have wanted to end a single collaboration over one of them. When you're just starting out and it's your first paper, your third paper, your fifth paper, it feels very important. You know, who's on the paper? What position are you on the paper? But I can tell you 20 years later, when you have 300 or more, you're not going to be mad that you were third author on that one paper back in the day, unless you wrote the whole thing. So that's where it does become really important to do your best to be fair. So if somebody wrote the paper, they should be first or starred first. If they contributed a couple of figures to the paper, then they're perhaps a middle author. When I'm working with certain collaborators, I can tell early on that it makes a lot of sense to split the project into two papers, perhaps one that's a little more clinically or biologically based, and the more clinical or biological folks lead that paper and they're first or last. And then the other paper is a little more informatics and stats heavy, and the informaticians and statisticians lead that paper. So one's more methodological with an application in the data, and then the other one is really about the data, and oh, by the way, we use this method. So that's one strategy that you can try. The other is to just be be really inclusive about the use of the kind of asterisks or starred authorship. So, you know, if there are a couple of people that really did contribute equally and there is some tension about who should be first or who should be last, just make starred first authors or starred last authors. That way everybody gets credit. Uh, I think the biggest thing with authorship is making sure that you're being as fair as possible. I think that you should be as inclusive as possible And the best suggestion is to talk about it before you're actually writing the paper, and sometimes even before you're doing the study, just to manage expectations. Just kind of lay out, you know, here's what we're thinking for the project. We're thinking this person or these people will be first authors, these people will be last. What do we think of that? And just being open and honest and transparent about the authorship process will go a long way to avoiding arguments with collaborators. All right. Uh, I think we're on number five. How do you pick a journal? This is one that I get asked a lot by my students and postdocs. They have this piece of work. They're now ready to start to write it up. They need to figure out what journal so that they know how to format the paper. My advice is always take a look at the journals that you're thinking about and see, do they have similar work? 
it shouldn't be the same work, obviously, or it wouldn't be unique and publishable, but something that has a similar flavor. We try to go to a journal that that seems like they're interested in that type of work. The other thing that we try to do generally is to aim high in terms of the impact of the journal with the first submission. It happened to me once early in my career that we submitted a paper to a journal and it got accepted right off the bat without any revision. And I thought, oh crap, we aim too low. Like that just never happens. I mean, out of my 300 and some papers, I I think that is the only one that got accepted straight in the first round of review. We always have to do at least one revision. Sometimes it's accepted pending revisions, but usually it's, we can't decide based on the current submission, but please revise and we'll consider. So you wanna aim high such that you at least do a revision. However, if you are in a hurry, so you are a student or a postdoc and you're gonna be interviewing soon, you're a person that's getting ready to go up for tenure this next year and you need you know, one or two other papers to be out, then I would also look at the publication timing for journals and factor that in. So if they publish quickly, you know, their average time from submission to publication is, you know, three months, whereas the other journal you're looking at is seven or nine months, I'd go with the faster publication time and factor that in along with the impact factor of the journal. All right, the last thing that I thought I would mention is what do you do when you get writer block? This happens a lot, especially when you're a new writer, so especially for grad students. This gets back to my why it is so important to have students write papers. It can be overwhelming and daunting when you have all of these data from you know six to 12 to 18 months of work, and it's time to write the paper, and you look at the computer screen, and you have a blank screen and a cursor just sitting there waiting for words. It's overwhelming. So I always tell my students to, number one, write the outline, which we talked about earlier. I think the outline is key. And then divide the writing based on that outline into tiny tasks. So today, I am going to write the methods for this one set of experiments. And the result of that is this figure. I'm going to write the results for this one figure. Writing one paragraph or three paragraphs is, that's easy. It, it really, it's not so overwhelming. And so if you just give yourself a writing assignment each day, I'm gonna write this one thing, all of a sudden you have the complete paper and it just makes it so much easier to get over that hump of the writer's block if you just break it up into tiny tasks. The other thing that I have seen work really well is to crowdsource the paper. So again, this would not be you know, the primary thesis work of a student, but when you have a collaborative project that several people in the lab or several collaborators in different labs have worked on, trying to think through like, gosh, how are we gonna write this and kind of pass it around? The strategy that I've seen work, I've tried it, and also some of my collaborators have done it, is that they take that outline you put a person's name next to each section and you divide it out. And each person sticks their text into, you could do it as a Google Doc or you could just send them all back to the main author and they can put it together. But if each person only takes their small section, like it's, it just gets done so quickly. It, 
it's daunting to think about writing up a section based on somebody else's set of experiments and results, but you could write your own. And so you write your piece, you stick it in, and then someone goes through and edits the paper to make it all sound like one voice, that it was written by, you know, one author or one, one voice. And I have found both that kind of dividing it up into small tasks, either for yourself or distributed across people, can be really efficient for getting a manuscript done quickly. All right, friends, that is it for today. I hope that these publication tips were helpful to you. I know that they can be controversial, as I said earlier, and there may be things that I suggested that your current mentor or supervisor does not like, and you can then, you know, you need to do what, what needs to be done to, to get through to your next position. But if you do like some of the approaches that I talked about, you can then implement them when you are leading your own group. I hope that if you are a mentor, you listened through this. And, and if some of the things that I talk about are not the way you typically do it, maybe just listen carefully and think through kind of the why behind why I do them the way that I do. It really boils down to, you know, my passion and my purpose is educating and training the next generation. And a huge part of that is the scientific writing process. So I do everything I can to make sure that I'm teaching them and training them in this aspect of being a scientist, even if sometimes that means that I I get some publications that are just, you know, lower tier journals and not going to have the same impact as some of my other work, that's okay because it's not all about me. It's about teaching them. So I hope that the tips were helpful. I hope that you have a good week and I'll talk to you next time. You've just listened to another episode of the Calm Podcast. I hope that some of the strategies that I talked about are helpful to you in your journey through academia and life. As they say, it's not all about the destination. It's about the journey. Let's make it a great one. Until next time.